0: Thanks for listening to Verse by Verse with Clinton DeFrance. What exactly did Stephen see when he was dying, and what did it mean? Find out in our study of Acts chapter 7, verses 54 through 60. Trust and way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and Acts chapter 7, verses 54 through 60. Acts 7, beginning in verse 54. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep in our last study we considered the evangelist stephen's sermon before the jewish high court the occasion was his trial for blasphemy in many respects the experience resembles the trial of jesus and it's common for modern scholars to explain this as a literary device used by luke to make stephen's experience a parallel to that of jesus for some theological reason of course That doesn't sound like those scholars believe that things really happened the way Luke says they did. He smudged and rephrased and reformed and exaggerated points here and there to cause it to sound a certain way out of a certain motivation. I believe we should reject that way of reading the Bible. It is inappropriate and unnecessary we have every reason to believe that the events really transpired exactly as the historian Luke reports them. The differences, frankly, outweigh the similarities, and the similarities themselves may be best explained in two ways, neither of which have anything to do with Luke's literary genius, however impressive that was. First, this was the same court that had earlier condemned Jesus himself to death, using the same sort of charges and the same sort of methods, so it's not surprising that they would try again what had worked before. We'll examine the second reason for similarities between the experiences of Stephen and Jesus in just a moment, but for now we want to emphasize some of the differences. First, when Jesus was brought before the Sanhedrin, the intention was definitely and singularly to condemn him to death, the Bible says this plainly in Matthew 26, verses 3 through 4, Mark 14, verse 1, Luke 22, verse 2. The leaders of the Jews had in fact sought to kill him from almost the beginning of his ministry, and the final trial was the hour, in Jesus' own terminology in Luke 22:53, that God himself presented to them to perpetrate that evil intention for his own mysterious purposes that would be revealed and manifest later. Of course, we who are Christians know what those purposes were, the salvation of our sins, the forgiveness of those who murdered him, as well as all others who have lived since that time. However, there is no reason to believe that the trial of Stephen was originally designed to lead to his death. The Jews did not have the legal right to execute anyone when they did. It was because the mob had overtaken restraint, and there were always severe consequences with the local Roman government in response. Almost certainly the aim of this trial was to lead to Stephen's excommunication and banishment from the synagogues where he was preaching Jesus as the Christ. Second, when Jesus was accused by the high priest— his response was incredibly brief. He offered no defense and preached no sermon. He simply submitted himself to their intentions. In fact, the Christian evangelists easily realized the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. In Isaiah 53 and verse 7, In the trial of Jesus, he was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, So he opened not his mouth. But Stephen responds very differently. He certainly doesn't revile them. In fact, he speaks very respectfully and logically, explaining why his preaching was not blasphemous or contrary to the will and work of God or the law of Moses, using the very scriptures these men revered. In fact, the reality was plainly laid out that the Sanhedrin were the lawless ones, the blasphemers, who by opposing the Christ were in league with their ignominious ancestors who murdered the prophets and were destroyed by God as judgment for that sin. J.W. McGarvey observed, The pent-up fires which had burned in the breast of Stephen from the beginning of these cruel proceedings, and which had given an angelic glow to his features before he began to speak, but had been carefully smothered during the progress of his argument, found vent to the amazement of his hearers, In these scorching and blazing words, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in the heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you have now become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. McGarvey continues, The exasperation of the Sanhedrin was as sudden as was the explosion of feeling with which the discourse came to an end, and it was the more intense because the denunciation hurled in their teeth was not a mere burst of passion, but the deliberate announcement of a righteous judgment sustained by his array of analogies from Scripture, the bearing of which now flashed suddenly upon their minds. They had not been able to resist in debate the wisdom and spirit with which Stephen spoke, and now their efforts to convict him of crime had recoiled with terrific force upon their own heads, thus picking up in verse 54, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. This statement is nearly identical to the one at the conclusion of Peter's first great proclamation of the living and reigning Lord Jesus on the day of Pentecost. In fact, in this English translation, there is no distinction. But the language is not identical in the original, in the Greek, and the meaning is not identical either. The New American Standard Version says, They were cut to the quick. That carries the imagery of one who is injured by having been sliced through to the underlying layer of flesh or to the bone. And many English versions recognize the idiom and simply say they were enraged or they were furious. In Edward Harwood's uh, 18th century paraphrase, he had described the response at Pentecost with these stirring words, Upon hearing this, they were pierced with the most cutting anguish and remorse of conscience, and in great distress of mind, coming around Peter and about the other apostles, they cried out, Brethren! What shall we do? That was conviction. But Harwood noted a difference here in Acts 7 and verse 54, not conviction, but merely rage. And so he offers this different analysis. These words stung the audience with fury and revenge and transported them with rage to that degree that they gnashed their teeth upon him. When Luke says, they gnashed their teeth upon him, or they gnashed at him with their teeth, we are reminded of God's description of Cain, the first child of the devil in the human family, brooding over his rejection of his faithless act of will worship. His countenance had fallen. His face was low. And this is also a graphic picture of an anger so intense that it physically manifest in them gritting and barring their teeth at Stephen while he spoke. The Sermon of Stephen was not that much different from the Sermon of Peter, but the audience was of an altogether opposite character. And it is not merely the power of the seed, but the condition of the soil that determines a fruitful harvest. These men were given God's power the Spirit's divine power of conviction, no less than any other man. But when God has chosen to extend that power through preaching that may be either accepted or rejected, one of the great mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, according to the Lord Jesus himself, is that God has so ordered things that its growth is dependent on the human hearer's willingness to respond. God could overtake all of us in an instant. He could dismantle us and disintegrate us and reform us in whatever shape or size or structure he desired. But God works in our lives invitationally unto our salvation. He sows and our response determines whether the seed will take root and how it will produce according to the Lord Jesus in Matthew 13, verses 1 through 23. The failure of some to turn and to submit to Christ is not a weakness on the part of Christ. He is the sovereign and mighty Lord whose control of all things cannot be questioned or taken away. There is not a rogue molecule in the universe that moves apart from his permission. God is in control even over his creatures who rebel against him. They could not rebel against him unless he permitted them to do so. But that brings us to a vital point. Divine control does not equal divine causation. God is not the cause of all things, and scripture never declares that he is. He did not cause these men to reject him. It was their own hardness and closed-mindedness that willingly refused the most overwhelming calls from God to the contrary. And what an amazing contrast. Here are the leaders of the Jews gritting their teeth and trembling in fury and rage. But, verse 55, Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. As with the earlier passage in Acts 6, the text seems to demand a broader understanding than merely a reference to his empowerment to work miracles, although his extraordinary experience and the words to the council, I think, clearly demonstrate that he had that. But Luke wishes us to see Stephen's righteousness, his justification before God, and his peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, which is the essence of the kingdom of God, according to the Apostle Paul in Romans 14 and verse 17, full of the Holy Spirit, In supernatural power and peace, the Bible says, Stephen gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now listen very carefully. These words ought to carry us once again back to the trial of Jesus Christ before this very same council. The very same high priest, who moments ago charged Stephen with the question, Are these things so? said to Jesus, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you hereafter, You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power, and coming on the clouds of heaven. This is that. Stephen is announcing to that same high priest, that same council, look, I see the Son of Man, I see Jesus. This is one of only three times that Jesus is called the Son of Man by anyone other than himself, the other two being by John in the Revelation on Patmos. It is a Messianic title from the book of Daniel. In Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14, the prophet said, "'I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him.' His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. And Jesus said to these men, you will see this. Now Stephen says, look, I see it. What Jesus called the power, Stephen calls the glory of God. Jesus is at the right hand of God. And we're going to discuss the issue of his posture in just a moment. But there's no contradiction between the words of Jesus and the vision of Stephen. The right hand of God does not refer to a geographical location so much as it refers to a position of dignity and power. It is, in the prophet Daniel's words, the dominion, the glory, the kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And Stephen says, look, I see it. There it is. Now, I believe he really saw it. And I believe he was telling them that if they would only look, they could see it too. They could know. They could believe. They could be saved. But they would not look. Instead, verse 57 says, "...then they cried out with a loud voice," and stopped their ears. They screamed and wailed and stuck their fingers in their ears so that they would not hear what he was saying and would not see what he was seeing. And I remind you who these men are. This is not a crowd of common folks who gathered in the street to hear some crazy man with a doomsday sign. These are the chief priests, the elders, the rabbis, and the lawyers, the leaders of Israel. This is the Sanhedrin, whose maxim was to save and not destroy life, whose president at the beginning of every trial would admonish all who were present that every life was precious and that God would hold them accountable If any evidence was overlooked that might favor the accused, yet here without even a vote or a formal sentence, they ran at him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him, says verses 57 and 58. There is a madness and an insanity that throws aside every sense of justice and moral restraint when men Reject God. There is no end on that journey but absolute destruction. And yet the madness does not remove the moral accountability. Human beings can be consumed with the insanity of rebellion against God and all the while have the outward appearance of dignity and refinement. And here, verse 58 says, The witnesses. The very false accusers whose testimonies had been thoroughly dismantled laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man. We're going to discuss this young man and some of the deep significance of this event in another study. But what we have here is a sick demonstration of pretense, that things are happening exactly as they ought to. In keeping with the order of things, the witnesses will cast the first stones as though the trial succeeded and he was found guilty, and they will take off their long flowing robes to give their arms freer movement and to protect themselves from being soiled by the blood and the brain matter of their victim. Verse 59, And they stoned Stephen. Outside the city they began to pelt him with rocks, and when he fell they would rush on him and beat him with heavy stones until his bones and inner organs were crushed to his death. No doubt they continued to scream and wail. But if they had only listened, they would have heard more words reminiscent of Jesus. Luke says, as they stoned him, he was calling on God. The reference here is to prayer. He was praying as they killed him. Now, the text actually leaves it somewhat open-ended as to whom he was praying. And translations variously say he was calling on God or he was calling on the Lord. In fact, we discover in the next statement that it was Jesus who he saw to whom he was praying. And what was his prayer? As Jesus had prayed to his Father from the cross, the triumphant victory cry of a saint resting in God, resting in full trust of God's justification and mighty power to deliver into your hands, I commit my spirit. So here is Stephen saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he said this, he fell asleep. It's now time to discuss the anomaly of Jesus' posture. Stephen saw him standing at the right hand of God, but this is the only time he is described as standing. In his own words to the priest and all other apostolic comments on Jesus' position in heaven, He is described as sitting, and this is always to emphasize the finality and completeness of Jesus' work. He sat down to rule because Satan and death were defeated. He sat down after presenting his blood to God because the once and for all sacrifice had been offered. Why is he standing here? There have been several suggestions made over time, and the one I think worthy of acceptance is that Jesus is standing still fully and completely in the position of all authority in heaven and on earth, still having completed his work and his tasks in the purposes of God, but he is standing in honor of Stephen, who on earth was standing for him. At that moment, as Stephen lies bleeding and broken, crumpled in a dying heap, it looked to the world as though the power of Jesus had failed. To this point, the church has grown without exception, increasing and abounding no matter what attacks were brought against it. The apostles were arrested, and an angel released them from jail. Nothing could stop the followers of Jesus. But now, it was clear they could die too. They could be killed just like their master. The tide was turning. Evil could win. The kingdom of heaven had suffered a defeat. That's how it looked on earth. But not so in the eyes of Jesus. Because as Stephen died, he prayed for the forgiveness of his murderers, just like Jesus before him. Why was Stephen's story so similar to the story of Jesus? Not because of the literary genius of Luke, but because Stephen was a Christian. In this moment, Stephen is bearing the image of Jesus Christ on earth. He is the living manifestation of the reign of God, fully present in a former sinner who was not only pardoned of his rebellion, but had been successfully transformed into one well-pleasing to God, a little Christ living in the wicked world. The will of God was being done on earth in him, as in heaven. From the perspective of Jesus, at that moment when the first disciple is slain for his faith, His response and his behavior was the most powerful and perfect manifestation of the victory of God's kingdom and Christ's redemptive work ever seen in history to that moment. So Jesus stands. He stands because here is proof that God has won and God is winning. We must think, that as the angels of heaven saw him rise from his celestial throne, they marveled and cheered and worshipped and cried, barely can we believe it, the wisdom of God is manifest, Jesus is worthy, Jesus is the victor. He actually did it. He redeemed a sinner back to God. Is Jesus present in us? Are there moments in our lives when the world looks at us and the resemblance to Christ is uncanny? When this happens, the hosts of heaven will marvel and cheer because this is what it's all about. In Romans, the eighth chapter, the apostle Paul says, the whole scheme of redemption, is flowing to this one great finality, that we might be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And when we become like Him, our redemption is complete. Thanks again for listening. Please subscribe to keep up with our weekly releases as we continue through the Scriptures together. Verse by verse is brought to you by the 11th Street Church of Christ in Tulsa, Oklahoma. You can contact us at Tulsa Church of Christ at gmail.com or visit tulsachurchofchrist.com. When we walk with the Lord, when we walk with the Lord, in the light of His word, in the light Lord, of His word, what a glory He sheds. All we do is good will He abides with us still He abides with us still And with all who will trust and obey